Good morning, Good Shepherd. And some of you are live streaming and others of you are live on our campus in Charlotte. And however you're engaging, I'm Talbot Davis, the pastor here. Always, always, always delighted to be able to connect with you. And and we thought it'd be really vital to spend about four weeks together as a church uh, kind of investigating, well, what is the Bible and, and, and what do people who don't believe in the Bible or the message that it contains, what are some of their objections to it? Because uh, all of us, wherever we stand in faith, uh, maybe you, you, uh, have, you, you live with a skeptic, M- maybe you go to school with a skeptic or work with a skeptic, or maybe the skeptic is the person who lives inside your head. And so we just decided that let's really deal honestly with the the objections that skeptics bring to the Bible. And today's message is called, Isn't the Bible Only Human? And if you have your Bible with you and and it looks like this, or maybe it's loaded on your phone, either way is fine, locate 2 Timothy, which is a letter in the New Testament, chapter 3 and verse 16, 2 Timothy 3, 16. And uh, this is one of those message where, messages where I'll go to a number of different places in the Bible, so you'll need to be a little bit nimble if you're really dedicated to flipping the pages, which is great. And if not, all the words are going to be up on the screen at just the right time like they always are. And at Good Shepherd, although we are t- uh, starting a series on Scripture and the skeptics, something we've been really looking forward to, Nevertheless, we like to let you know where we stand in leadership here when it comes to the Bible. And one of the things that we believe about the Bible is that it's not a book and it is a library, a lot of authors, a long span of time, multiple writing styles. And and that's just kind of factual. But the other thing that we believe that moves into that realm of deeply held conviction is that, is that we believe in leadership here. And you may not believe this yet, and that's fine, but we believe that God really did pour out his truth into its words. He filled its pages with his love. We believe the Bible is inspired, eternal, and true. And because we believe that about the Bible in leadership of this church, when we talk about it, we do this kind of different thing. We lift it up. And and if you've never been here before, you've never tuned in before, and you thought, wait, 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 I I tuned in or I came because I thought y'all were going to be talking about scripture and the skeptic. And now you've got this kind of strange moment of everybody lifting their Bible up. That's just odd. We admit it. I'm not going to try. Oh, that's, that's perfectly normal. No, it's odd. But we've discovered this moment of oddity shapes our identity as a community. There were a collection of people surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be unleashed on our lives, even on a day where we talk about people who are skeptical, sometimes us, people who are skeptical towards the word. Amen? Before I say another word, we're going to pray. Before I pray, look at the person on your right. Look at the person on your left. You see those people in your mind's eye? Would you just pray in silence that God would give those people you just saw exactly what they need from today's message. Let's pray that. Thank you, Lord, that prayer is not something we watch someone else do. Prayer is what we're all part of. And so uh, have thine own way with this message because you're the potter, I'm the clay. Amen. So as we, uh, as we start out this series, Scripture and the Skeptic, I need to begin with a uh, really sort of a confession because years ago, actually it was so many years ago, it was in the 90s, 
Wow is right. It was in the 1990s, okay? It was in the 90s. I gave a sermon with the title, God Wrote a Book. In fact, we have a picture of a corner of that sermon. God wrote a book. And you, if you look closely, you can see the type on that sheet of paper came out of one of those old dot matrix printers. And, then the, and, and so that's how long ago all those notes were prepared. God wrote a book which is, I think, back on it many, many years later of that sermon and its title is just wrong on so many levels and worse than being wrong. It's actually deceptive, that sermon title, because first of all, we know that it ain't no book. It's a, yeah, the Bible's not a book. It's a library, as they would say down in Monroe where I gave that message. So, (laughs) but even more deceptive than that, God didn't write it. People did. Now, I I think God was intimately, beautifully involved in the composition of the books of the Bible, which I'll get to in a moment. But it is fundamentally dishonest and deceptive to say that God wrote the books of the Bible when almost all of the books of the Bible tell you exactly who wrote them on their very pages. And, And in fact... I would say, as we launch into this series, Scripture and the Skeptic, the, the, the fact that, that I, as a, as a preacher almost 30 years ago, that I didn't really have the best understanding of what Scripture was, the, 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 the fact that so many people who call themselves Christians and go to church because we don't really understand what the Bible is, the skeptics in our lives don't really believe what it says. And when I talk about the misunderstandings that we bring to the very nature of of Scripture, yeah, I I am talking about some of the misunderstandings that people who who dismiss it all don't believe in it and, and don't claim Jesus or go to church. I am talking about some of their misunderstandings about Scripture. And some of, when I say there, that might be some of you. And that's so awesome that you're here today. But even more to the point, I'm talking about people who, who, call themselves Christians, come to church, and yet bring to church and bring to faith so many misunderstandings, again, about what exactly the Bible is. And I'm just going to list a few of these misunderstandings, and and who knows, I may may list some of yours. Like, I I remember that conversation with that guy who told me with the best of intentions. I mean, this is a guy who loves Jesus and loves church, and, and and he told me that time, well, gosh, Talbot, I, I thought the Bible was just all about what happens in heaven, that it's like a really long book or, or, or a really big library full of stories from the streets of gold. And again, with the best of intentions, that's not ex- at all what the Bible is about. In fact, the, the part devoted to that topic is minute compared to the, the entire library. And, or, or then uh, another misunderstanding that people will bring to Scripture on, on many, many occasions. And, and with, again, with really good intentions is they say, I believe it cover to cover, which again is fine. That's honorable, except (laughs) the books of the Bible were written before covers were invented. They were written on parchments and scrolls and housed in synagogues and temples. And not a single biblical author would have ever even conceived 
that their book would be part of a library that you could hold in your hand, much less load onto your phone. The, the, the printing press was not invented until over 1500 years after the last book of the Bible was written. So again, this is, it's, it's innocent terminology or innocent understandings, I guess, but so many times we apply to the books of the Bible modern understandings, even of technology and even of, of, of the way books work, alien to the way the Bible was put together. And I can't, and then, then there's that other one. I thought it was all on heaven. I believe it covered to cover so many misunderstandings. And then there's that other one. Well, preacher, we just, we, we just got to read it all literal. You, you only get the Bible when you read it all literally. Again, I have something that I want to share with you on that in just a few minutes that is super, super important. But that is yet another misunderstanding of the nature of the scripture. And again, I can't help but believe, and, and I'm speaking to Christians tuning in or Christians in the house today, that because we don't really understand what it is, they, skeptics, don't quite believe what it says. And, and from the viewpoint of, of a skeptic asking that question, isn't it just human after all? I mean, you can understand that question. You, you can understand, because I remember, I remember what it's like to be a skeptic. And I remember what it's like to, th to think that this was just a collection of myths and fables and maybe just a little bit more significant than Humpty Dumpty on the wall maybe with a little bit of God thrown in but you can under that understand that objection that skeptics bring why in the world would you believe an ancient collection that's so obviously human that is so clearly biased and it's awfully awfully old after I mean haven't we gotten a lot smarter than people were in they hadn't even invented plumbing aren't we smarter than the people who wrote so so long ago well the answer those questions, maybe a million others. I think it's really helpful to, to look for just a moment at what one of the authors within the biblical library, what he has to say about the library of which he is part. It's not often that the books of the Bible actually talk about scripture or talk about the Bible. And yet when they do, it's really enlightening, really interesting. And one of those occasions is when Paul who was a pastor, missionary, and author, who traveled around the Mediterranean world 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. He started out traveling to kill Christians, and then he became one. And then he, after he became one, he began writing a lot of letters to churches and individuals. And in his second letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, Paul is the mentor, Timothy is the protege, Look at what Paul says there in verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, all scripture, and even before I read any more, it's really interesting. Well, what did Paul mean by all scripture? Did he think, did he think the book that he was writing, the letter that he was writing, did he think that that was going to be included in what he said about all scripture? We don't know. We, we know for sure he's including the Old Testament and particularly the books of Genesis through uh, Genesis, Exodus, De De Deuteronomy. First, he, we know that's what he's talking about with all scripture. Was he talking about himself? We don't know for sure. What, what does he say? 
all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, the man of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, some of you and, and, and I actually, I first heard this verse in a translation. It didn't say all scripture is God-breathed. It said all scripture is inspired by God. And, and when we hold up the Bible here at Good Shepherd, you know, that moment of oddity, we say the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. And, and that word in, in inspired, I mean, that can maybe throw a wrench into it because a lot, like a lot of people are inspired for a lot of things. Like I believe Tom Petty was inspired when he sang Free Fallen. <laughs> and I believe Beyonce was inspired when she sang all the single ladies. Come on now. <laughs> You're like, he knew that song? I think Shakespeare was inspired when he wrote King Lear. George Lucas was inspired when he made Star Wars. All kinds of authors and all kinds of artists. Michelangelo was inspired when he painted the Mona Lisa. All kinds of authors, all kinds of artists inspired to create great works of art and, and, and great uh, monuments to thought. But that's different. People get inspired, but God breathed is fundamentally decisively different than that. When we say that scripture is God breathed, it's, it's on an entirely different level than an artist or an author or a singer who gets momentarily inspired. God breathed is decisively different. But hold on, hold on. God breathed is not the same as God dictated. When we say that all scripture is God breathed, we are not saying that the authors of the scripture were merely the scribes and what we get is all God with none of their, their authorial filter. In fact, and, and this is, you may not know this and, and I think wherever you are, I think it's really important for you to know this. What Christians believe about the Bible is so different from what Muslims believe about the Quran. Muslims believe that the Quran is God dictated, that it's all Allah, no filter. They, they believe that, that what Muhammad did was he wrote down directly from God. There's none of Muhammad's personality in the Quran at all. The Quran is God dictated, not God breathed. Well, we believe they're, they're badly, tragically mistaken on that. We don't think that's true about the Quran at all. But even more to the point for today, what we believe about the Bible is so different. God breathed is so different than God dictated. When we talk about God breathed, we mean that God used the personalities and the skills and the wisdom, the peculiarities, and even some of the hangups of the biblical authors and breathe his life and his truth so that we would get out of it what we needed to know about God and what we needed to know about ourselves. God used their personalities and used their gifts in a way that we get God so fundamentally different than, than just if he had merely dictate. They're, they're not robots. Actually, the, the authors of the Bible are geniuses. Like I think Mark, the author of the gospel of you know what? At the first service, they were much more on that. <laughs> I think Mark, the author of the gospel of, Mark. I think he is brilliant. 
And I'm so glad that God used his brilliance, that God used his literary genius to better depict the beauty of the Savior. I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad that, that God used Paul. And man, you read the letters of Paul, you would be well excused for, for thinking, this guy's got issues. He had quirks. He had rivalries. He had jealousies. But through it all, God redeemed it all. And I'm so glad that God used the unique characteristics that made Paul, Paul, so that we could get a better understanding of what makes Jesus, Jesus. And I'm so glad that God used the wonder of David. And David had problems. And I'm so glad that God used that wonder that David had to teach us more about the worship of the Father. And I'm so glad that God used the personality of Luke and Luke is a fascinating character because he's part doctor and he's part reporter. He's part physician. He's part journalist. And God uses all that stuff, all that stuff in the personality of Luke to help us gaze on the person of Jesus. And after all, isn't that what scripture is all about? That's God breathed. And it's so much better. It's so much warmer. It's so much more alive than God dictated ever could be. That's why that sermon title so long ago was so dumb. God didn't write it. God did better. He breathed it, which may lead you to ask that question that you have asked, that you've been asked. Well, do you, do you interpret the Bible literally or symbolically? I mean, think about it. Are, are the Opening chapters of Genesis, are they literally true? Is the Genesis' author writing science or symbolically so? Was Jesus literally born of a virgin? Was Peter literally a water walker even ever so briefly? Do you interpret the Bible literally or symbolically? Well, you know, asking that question is as foolish as going to the Steel Creek Library or the Fort Mill Library and asking, do y'all have fiction books in there or nonfiction books? Well, the answer is, of course, both. And here's the deal, Good Shepherd. You don't interpret the Bible symbolically. You don't interpret the Bible literally. You interpret it literarily. Not literally, not symbolically, literarily, which means that we who read the scripture, we have the, because it's a library and a library has a lot of different styles, genres, if you want to use a fancy word, a lot of different styles of writing. And we who read scripture, we have this incredible privilege of figuring out, well, what kind of style of writing is that? And then we interpret it accordingly. And it, when you think about the, 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 the library that is the Bible, I mean, you, you got straight history like 2 Samuel. And you got correspondence like 2 Timothy. You have this new, unique style of writing called gospel, which is, God, which is biography with proclamation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have a song book, the book of song, Psalms. You have, you have romantic poetry, actually, that's the sanitized version. It's not romantic poetry. It's erotic poetry. <laughs> Did he just say that in church? Yes. It's the song of songs. Read it. You'll be shocked. It's what it is. So we have this privilege of, of reading scripture literarily. And, and if you're like, I'm mad now. He, he said, you don't read it all literally. 
think about it. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall. If, if we read that literally, God is a shepherd with a staff and a robe and we are sheep. We read it literarily. And when you read it literarily, it's more true, hello, than it ever could be reading it literally. Yeah, don't ask, don't, don't ask questions of the Bible that it is not designed to answer. In fact, we, we let the authors of the scripture set the agenda and we get this privilege of figuring out what they are doing. And by the way, uh, yeah, did Jesus literally rise from the dead? Absolutely. Was he literally born of a virgin? Absolutely. And why do I know that? Because the sections, I know it by faith, but the sections of scripture that tell us those stories are those sections where they are calling out, begging you, read me literally. We get to understand the style of writing. And when, and when, you under, when you're in, okay, I don't have to make a false choice literally or symbolically. There's some literally, there's some symbolically, there's some totally different kinds of writing all together. The other kind of thrilling truth is that these books in the Bible, you may not know this, they have conversation with each other. It's a library. And, and sometimes books within the library answer things that other books have said. Like the book of Proverbs says essentially, Old Testament book essentially, live right, you'll be blessed. The book of Ecclesiastes written by the exact same author says, oh yeah? Here's what life is like when you're depressed. Well, hallelujah. How many of us have lived through those seasons when life only made sense when we understood that we were depressed? There's conversation going. The gospels, like how many angels were at the empty tomb? Matthew and Mark say there were two. Luke says there were one. There was one. And John the only gospel author who was actually at the tomb doesn't mention angels at all, but he does have to throw in the fact that there was a foot race to the empty tomb and he beat Peter. <laughs> That's actually in there in John chapter 20. We raced, I won, take that Pedro. That's what's going on. And so when you, you realize there's conversation, there's, well, what about that detail and that detail? How, how are they going to measure up what, what I'm going to do with Proverbs? What am I going to do with Ecclesiastes? And these are the kind of questions with the kinds of uncertainties that used to twist me in knots and used to keep me up at night. And then I realized, these are smart people. These are smart people who wrote the books of the Bible, smarter people who edited the books of the Bible. The smartest people were those in the early church who decided the books that got in and the books that didn't make it in. And there was no collusion, there was no conspiracy. All of these were smart people. And whatever minor alterations or distinctions on the details didn't bother them one bit. So why in the world should they bother me? And when I realized that, oh my God, when I, when I stopped asking questions of the Bible that its authors are not interested in answering. Like, like I, well, where did Cain's wife come from? Some of you may know the story and others may not, but Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, there's four people on earth. Cain offs Abel, four minus one equals yes. And then the next, like a couple sentences later, well, Cain's wife. And we're like, where did she come from? <laughs> How did this happen? 
Listen, Genesis's author is smarter than any of us. And he wasn't interested in that question. That wasn't his agenda. We bring questions to the Bible. It's not designed to answer. And once I decided, hey, instead of me setting the agenda, let's let the authors of the Bible set the agenda. It was so freeing. And I began to realize that it's very humanness. Was it strength? The, the, the fact that it was so human didn't make it less inspired. It made it more so. It didn't detract from God's role to it. It added to because it made it so clear that God used flawed people to tell his flawless story. So here's what I want you to know. Every one of you, and, and you're the skeptic yourself, or you have skeptics in your life, and they're like, the Bible's so human, how can you believe it? Here's the answer. The Bible is so human, it is positively divine. It's humanness adds to its inspiration. That because it is God breathed, God's used all the darkness and all the quirks and all the light and all the strengths of people to convey his perfect and pure word. It's humanness is not something to run away from or be embarrassed about. It's ragged edges. It's rawness is something to embrace and celebrate. And the, and the Bible, it's got some raw edges. If you read the Bible, if you don't just hear what other people say about it, but you actually read it, you, you will come across things like, hello, erotic poetry, and you're gonna be like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Like some of you may know J.L. in the book of Judges, chapter four. J.L. and her enemy and her spike, check it out. Or others of you, same book, the book of Judges. One of, I said earlier, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's not really my favorite verse. I just think it's one of the most enlightening verses. Judges chapter 16, and verse one, where our great hero of the faith, Samson, let's read what it says. One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute and he went in to spend the night with her. Not for Bible study and prayer, okay? That's in the Bible. Or the fact that the driving issue in the book of 1 Corinthians which is the same book in the Bible with the, with the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, all, all, all that. The reason, the reason 1 Corinthians exists, the reason Paul had to write them a letter is because there's a man in the church having an affair with his stepmother. That is, can we all agree that is as far from, the Bible is all about what happens on the streets of gold as you can possibly get. Can I hear an amen for that? It is so real and so raw and so dark. And so's your life. Don't we all have places in our lives that we would rather conceal? And scripture comes along and reveals them. Don't we have a good God who knew that his children would suffer from depression of the kind. You can't believe you got out of bed this morning. And so he, he inspires a book written from the perspective of someone who is clinically depressed. Are we grateful that, that God used people with issues? Because I know y'all got issues. 
I don't always grateful that he used someone with issues like Paul and the jealousies that he had and the insecurities that he revealed. And yet the transformation that God wrought in his life. And are we glad that God used all of that to convey his story? And one of the things that I'm most glad that God inspired, I don't, we have such an emotionally secure God. I don't know if you knew that. Our God is so emotionally healthy and he's so emotionally healthy that he inspired multiple Psalms in, in the book of Psalms, whose main topic is that God is not doing a good job of being God. If you doubt me, read Psalm 13, Psalm 44, Psalm 88, all of them filled with people shaking their fists at God. What are you doing, Lord? Why have you turned your back on us? What is your problem, God? And I, God is so emotionally, can, God can take it. He can take our anger and he can take our doubt because he knows he can take our clenched fists and turn them into raised hands. And he's so secure. He's so secure. He can even inspire a book like Esther, which by design and not by accident refuses to mention the name of God. By design. And, and if it was me, I'd be like, well, what about me? Let's talk about me. And, and God's, God's like, I'm, I'm cool. I'm, I'm good with this. I'm going to breathe life into a word that, into a book that does not mention my name. The Bible is so human. It's positively divine. One of those stories that is so human and maybe even cause you to question your faith if you've heard it. It's the kind of story a lot of people know and relatively few have read. It's from Genesis chapter 22 and it's where Abraham, God tests Abraham and he has him uh, almost sacrifice his son Isaac. And, and a lot of people are like, if that's what kind of God God is, I don't want anything to do with it. And, and, and that the story in Genesis chapter 22, I told you that the author of Genesis is smart. He's a genius. The story is told in excruciating detail, slow as molasses. And the reader has to take this incredible trip up the mountain with a father who thinks he's going to sacrifice his son. And the son's horror-filled realization of what is happening. And yet tucked in the middle of this excruciating story is this verse, Genesis 22, 8. Abraham answered, he answered Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together and you may be asking, well, why that verse? Why tuck that verse in there when the animal that is later substituted for Isaac is not a lamb, but a ram? Why is that verse in there? And what if the story isn't about Abraham and Isaac at all? What if the story is in there to point to the lamb? What if the story is in there so that you and I might learn to read all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus? Because what is it that the prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years after this encounter in Genesis 22, what does he say in Isaiah 53, 7, as he looks ahead to the coming Messiah? says this, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And, and what is, move ahead 700 years or so, what does is, what is the gospel of John say? What, how, does, how does the author John describe the meeting of John the Baptist 
with Jesus? Look at what he says in John chapter 1, verse 29. And the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and you move forward a couple decades later, and what does Paul say as he's trying to explain true faith to the Corinthian church who's gotten so many things wrong? He says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And how does the book of Revelation written at the end of the very first century, how does it wrap the whole thing up? Revelation chapter 22 and verse one. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb. The hallelujah is right. Don't tell me that's my accident. Multiple authors writing in multiple centuries, in multiple genres, and yet they all come together to tell one epic story of Jesus the Lamb and his story transcends centuries and genre. What a good God we have. Every darkness in scripture is to make us look ahead to the light of the world because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, thank you that you, you are the thread. Thank you that all scripture, even the rawest of it, the most human of it, points inevitably to the lamb on his throne, taking away the sins of the world. Be pleased now, for you are our King of kings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.